Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit here this morning. So we've been going through this little mini-series here for, we've got three weeks. And, and last week in the whole series, we're talking about this idea of collide. As Christians, we've got to deal with God and family and culture and how they mix and how they intersect and how they collide. And so we're looking at different things and, and ways that we need to take the Christian truths and how they meet up with our current culture. And so last week we talked about how we are to influence the next generation. And we boiled it down to, to two basic truths, to remember and to teach. And if we would keep doing those things and put that on repeat, remember and teach, and remember and teach, and remember and teach, we'll be able to influence uh, the next generation. And so this morning we're going to talk more about how we can influence the culture around us. Understanding that as we influence the next generation, we influence culture. But today we're going to look at some things, some practical ways that we can influence the culture that we find ourselves in. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to walk you through basically the whole chapter, but the first half just to give you an idea, background, some context into where we are in Paul's life. And so in Acts 17, we find Paul. He's in the middle of his second missionary journey. And so if you have your Bibles there, Acts 17, the, your subtitle or heading there might be Paul and Silas and Thessalonica. And so that's what's happening. Paul and Silas, they're going from place to place. They're going from city to city and they're preaching the word. They're sharing the gospel. And so they get to Thessalonica and they go in. And as was Paul's custom, he goes into the synagogue and he reasons and he expounds the scriptures and he talks about Jesus. And many of those who were not Jews, it says the devout Greeks, leading women, they believed. They responded to the call of the gospel and they followed Paul and his teachings. But he angered the Jews. Verse 5 says, but the Jews were jealous. And so they took some of the wicked men of the rabble and they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason where Paul and Silas were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And so what happened is he, they anger this group of Jews and they stir up the city and they drive Paul and Silas out of Thessalonica. And so they dust off their feet and they go on to the next place. The next place we catch up with Paul and Silas is Berea. And so they go to Berea and when they arrive there, guess what they do? They go to the Jewish synagogue and they go to the synagogue and they expound the scriptures and they share the gospel. This group of Jews was more receptive and they start hearing and the Jews start believing and other G Gentiles in Berea, they start believing as well. But the Jews from Thessalonica heard what was going on in Berea and they did it like that. And so they come over and the brothers in Berea, meaning the Christians, have to send Paul off at night because, again, he's chased out of the city. And so Paul gets on a boat and he heads to Athens. And so that's where we pick up the story in verse 16. So Paul has to go by himself in the middle of the night on a boat, and he's going to wait. He says, hey, send Silas and Timothy as soon as you can. And so Paul is waiting in Athens. So that's verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Paul He's doing what a tourist might do. He's walking down the streets. He's looking at the sights. He's taking it all in. And as he walks, he sees idol after idol after idol and statue and poles and towers and art and, and all of this stuff. 
And he isn't like the fun-loving tourist that's like, oh, that's so pretty. Oh, that's so nice. Look at that architecture. Ooh, this one's nice and shiny. That wasn't Paul. Paul's going through and he's walking through the streets of Athens and he's seeing all these idols and his heart is grieved. It says the spirit was stirred within him. It's this, he had this, this deep grief for the city because they were so lost. So what does he do? He does what he always does. Verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And Luke gives us a little insight here. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so here's the context of the next few verses that we're really going to focus on this morning is that Paul, he's grieved in his heart for these people because they're so full of idols and there is nothing about the one true God. There's no mention of Jesus. And so this doesn't stop Paul from doing what he always does. He goes to the synagogue. He expounds the scriptures. He preaches Christ, him crucified and resurrected. He then goes into the marketplace. and He's having discussions with people in the marketplace and he's telling them something new. And the thing about Athens was it was on the decline in terms of influence in the region and economically, but they were still the seat of philosophical thought. And so anybody who thought they knew anything was at Athens. And they knew and they would uh, talk about different philosophies and how the world was and all this stuff. But they hadn't heard the words that Paul was saying before. They hadn't heard Jesus. And he was saying this other word, Anastasius. Anastasis. Like, what's that? And they thought maybe he was talking about another God. That's the word for resurrection. And it was just a foreign com- concept for them. And so he's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about him um, being risen from the dead. And so they're like, hey, we haven't heard this before. You're going to go want to talk at the Areopagus or Mars Hill where our leaders come together and the key philosophers, the council of the city comes and talks. They're going to we- want to hear this new thing. And so that brings us to the main passage in verse 22. Paul's defense to the philosophers of the day at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I just want to stop there for a second. and We're going to hit on this in a minute. But here... Paul points out a point of commonality between him and these philosophers, these want-to-know-everything-about-how-the-world-works people. He says, hey, I see that you're religious. The word could also be superstitious, but I think he was trying to pay them a compliment. Then he's saying, hey, you're very religious. I see all of your idols. But then he finds a way to connect this little piece of commonality to the answers that only God can provide. 
So then he takes advantage of the opportunity to speak truth into these philosophers and those that would be around listening. And this is what he says. He preaches a mini-sermon. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So you see, Paul, he, he makes common ground. He says, hey, I see that you're very religious. But he also doesn't shy away from truth. He doesn't hesitate to say that, hey, the one you're looking for, the unknown God, he is not an idol. He continues, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And so what is Paul doing here? He's describing God. He's giving them a bigger picture, a true picture of who God is. He said, number one, he's not an idol because he is the creator of all things. And not only is he sovereign over all, he sustains all things. So verse 27 continues. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul takes this truth about who God is and he makes it personal. He makes it personal. He points out that, hey, this God, he made you. But not only did he make you, he wants and desires a relationship with you. He points out that he's accessible, that he's close by. He points out some of their own poets and how they had gotten it wrong. They said, well, well, we're all his offspring. And they might have been speaking about Zeus or another god. He said, no, this god is the one who created you. And so he continues in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So again, Paul doesn't shy away from your wrong in your idolatry. He does point out their sin. And he does call them to repentance. But he also does it graciously. He doesn't start talking about every single thing that they have done wrong. He doesn't point out all the various ways that all their idols are wrong. No, he just says, here's God. Here's what he thinks about you. And here's how you can know him. And how, here's how every person needs to respond. You need to repent because, verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He connects the gospel with the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what stands out to me in this passage is what a remarkable job that Paul does in terms of balancing the culture with the truth of the gospel. And so, how do the people respond? The last few verses here of the chapter. Verse 32. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, 
among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul gets a mixed reception. Some outright mocked him. The resurrection from the dead, that doesn't happen. He was talking about to Epicureans and Stoics, and neither of them really believed that either God wasn't there or that he was so far off, there's no way we could know him. And he says, no, he's here. You can receive him. And they couldn't handle that. They mocked him. There's others who weren't quite convinced, but they were intrigued. They said, we're going to hear you again. We're going to think about this. We might come back with some questions to ask you, Paul. And then there were others who believed. And so that's the story. That's the story of Paul in Athens. And then Acts chapter 18, he goes off to Corinth and, and the mission and journey continues. What are we supposed to learn from this story and, and why is it important for the church today? And I just want to give this brief caveat. And what I appreciate about the chapel is we're committed to exegetical and expositional preaching. And what that means is we pretty much look at the text and we teach the text. We stick to the Bible. We're a Bible church. And, and we want to we preach and teach exactly what the Bible says. And we're not changing that. We stand on that. But there are times, and I believe this morning is one of them, where I'm not going to preach exactly. We could preach a whole sermon on Paul's sermon. We could talk and pull out the things and truths that Paul brings. We're not going to do that. I briefly just walk through that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take some truths and application based on this interaction with Paul. So number one, I believe it's biblical, and it's going to come straight from the text. But it is more of a, of a topical approach to the text. But it's warranted, especially because of the culture and issues that we're dealing with. And so while I think our primary objective should be to, to preach what the text says, I think there's some important truths that we can glean from the application of how Paul approaches the people of Athens. And this is especially relevant for us today because Paul was visiting a city full of idols. We are living in a culture full of idols. We're expected to raise families in a culture full of idols, full of things that are opposite of what God has called us to do and how God has called us to live. And so I think Paul is setting for us an important example about how he is building bridges from the culture to the truth of the gospel. And I want to give us three imperatives, three imperatives that we can implement if we will, if we want to build bridges between our culture in 2018 and the gospel. These are imperatives that we need to live by and they're imperatives that we need to continue to teach to that next generation. So here we go. First imperative. First imperative is simple. Be different. Be different. When Paul arrived in Athens, he was an outsider. People would have recognized him as, as, as different. He looked different. He probably sounded different. He probably had some sort of accent. He was a Jew. And he was in the middle of Athens. Okay, but that's not why he stood out. Why he stood out was his message. And that was the point. And I think sometimes we forget that being a Christian, that our message is going to cause us to be different, to look different. And we ought to expect this. And we ought to teach this. 
be different. Paul wasn't afraid about looking different or sounding different. He just did what he was called to do. That was preach the gospel. And he did it with boldness and with conviction. And when, when I look at churches or, or Christianity as a whole, I'm, I'm afraid that in an effort to be relevant or an effort to, to uh, uh, meet the culture, we have become like the culture, and people can't tell the difference between the church or a Christian and the world. And the problem is, if people can't tell the difference in our church or in our lives, they're not going to notice us. They're not going to see us. They're not going to hear us. And they're definitely not going to want to join us because there's really nothing different between Christianity and the world if we are not living differently. You know, I don't know if you know know this or not, but my parents ruined my professional soccer career. It happened. Seventh grade. My parents ruined my professional soccer career. I'll tell you the story briefly. Seventh grade, I was invited to be on the local traveling soccer team. My parents said no. And there died my professional soccer dreams. (laughs) Why would they say no? You know why? Because the games were on Sunday. Because they knew that I was going to have to go to tournaments and this and that, where I was going to miss a whole bunch of church. And they said no. And they crushed my dreams. I can't believe it. And you know what? I had to go and I had to tell my friends. And I was angry. And I was upset. And I was a little embarrassed. I couldn't play soccer because it was on Sunday. Can you believe that? Well, you know what my parents were doing in that moment? Parenting. They were parenting. They were explaining to me in that one little word, no, about what would and would not be a priority in our lives. And church was more important than sports. Period. And listen, I'm not just really on sports here. The point is not sports. Although some people need to hear that. The point is that when we make decisions that put God first, it will look different. It is different. And we will have to do that. When we talk about, but it's more, more than just about sports, or more about dressing differently, or more about where we show up on Sunday. It's got to be deeper than that, because a lot of that is superficial. So how else can we be different? When we talk about joy in the midst of tragedy, that's different. When we talk about there's only one way of salvation, that's different. When we talk about living for something outside of ourselves, that this life might be more than just about our comfort or our pleasures, that's different. When we won't watch certain things or listen to certain things or go certain places, that's different. And these are the things that we have to be okay with because God has called us to be different. Parents, it's okay to tell your kids no. But hear this, it's not just about the superficial stuff. It is not just about not missing church on Sunday mornings. It's okay to say no in order to teach them a deeper truth about who God is and who God has called them to be. I'm not saying that we have to be social outcasts 
or that the world has to look at us like a bunch of weirdos, or that we can't play sports. But what I am saying is that if Jesus has made a difference in our life, people ought to be able to know and see that. It's got to make a difference, and it's got to show up in our lives. We have to consider where we're spending our time, where we're putting our resources and money. Jesus has to make a difference. And the world needs to see a people who are distinct and different. So there's another imperative here in Paul's example. Not only should we be different, but we ought to be consistent. And you know, being different only matters if we're different all the time. Being different one morning for two hours a week doesn't cut it. We need to be consistent. And so I cannot play soccer and show up at church and still miss this thing if I'm different on Monday morning. If Jesus doesn't make a difference on Tuesday. When Paul went into the city, he saw all this stuff. He didn't capitulate the culture. He did what he has always done. He preached the same gospel that he had been preaching in Thessalonica, and he preached in Berea that got him run out, that literally made him run for his life. He didn't change the message. His message was consistent, and his example was consistent. He didn't try to change or adjust the gospel just because his environment or circumstance changed. How? Why, was, why does it seem so easy for Paul to be so consistent in his message, even though he was running up against a culture that was so different. I think it's because he understood this truth. We become what we worship. And for Paul, it was less about doing the Christian thing and about being. He was naturally a person who followed after Christ because that was who he worshipped at his core. He derived his purpose, his identity, his worth from God. And it was evident in the way he lived his life and by his faith. And so here's the problem that I see, and I I include me in this, us. That a lot of times we have a disconnect between what we say we worship and how we live. And I would say if you struggle with this concept of consistency in your faith or walk with Christ, you actually have a lot in common with the people of Athens. Your problem is idolatry. Our problem is idolatry. And I said, well, wait a minute. I'm not worshiping any golden calves or statues. Or, Okay, but that's not what, what an idol is. What's at the heart, the core of idolatry? I reading this book by Alan Ross. He says this. Anything that fills our desires and devotions instead of God. Anything that replaces God as the source of security and satisfaction in our lives or anything that robs God of his proper place in our affections and commitments. That's an idol. And so when we start putting that definition of idol, we can see pretty quickly, oh, I might have an idolatry problem. If I'm having a problem with a consistent walk with Christ, we can probably say it's because we're misaligned in our desires, devotions, security, satisfaction, affections, or commitments. So how do we avoid it then? How do we avoid idolatry so that we might be more consistent in our witness and so that we might be more profitable in our sharing of the gospel? Well, we need to evaluate what we are worshiping. 
And I think we need to be especially careful of making good things ultimate things. You're all here in church. I don't see you bowing down to, to things. We need to consider some things. Started writing down a list of things that I think, and we could spend a whole lot of time here, but it's not about the specifics. So I'll just throw some things out here. Marriage can become an idol. Relationships, politics, even your children, health, success, financial stability, recreation, appearance, all of these things, they can become idols so quickly because they take our attention, our devotion, away from where it should be placed, and that's God. Why shouldn't we worship those things? Because they make terrible gods. They make terrible gods because they're all fleeting and they're all fading and they will ultimately all fail you. If you put your hope and trust in any of those things, when they don't work out, when the marriage doesn't work, when the kids don't turn out, when the job promotion doesn't come, you're going to be crushed under the weight of, of that. Those things won't hold up. They're idols. We need to get rid of them. We must become devoted to the Lord. We live our lives in response and worship to Him. It's going to look different. right? We have to put serving others ahead of our personal success. Instead of focusing on just receiving blessings, we're going to have to look on how we can be a blessing. We're not going to have to just commit to having an experience on Sunday morning for two hours. We're going to have to commit to growing and maturing and learning. Our entertainment, our pleasures, even our hobbies and recreation, they might have to be put on hold so that we can meet the needs of those around us. See, this is what consistent worship looks like. A faith that makes a difference every day. And if you're not convinced, just go read the prophet. And listen and read about how God rails on His people for idolatry and hypocritical worship that does not go out and love and serve people all over the prophets. Not to mention, just read the Sermon on the Mount. That would be a good start for you, Matthew 5 or 7. One more imperative here. We be different. We be consistent. And when we do those two things, we need to be ready. Paul was on the offensive as he went around. He went around and he talked about Jesus to anybody and everybody that would listen. But he was also ready when he was asked the question at the council at Mars Hill. It's that First Peter 3.15 principle. Be ready always when someone asks you about the hope that is in you. We too ought to be ready so that we can make the most of every opportunity. Paul didn't shuffle his feet. He didn't say, well, let me go uh, ask my Bible study teacher. Let me go call my pastor. Let me go. He had an answer. He was ready. And before you say, well, that's Paul. He's a missionary. He's a man. He's a man who is devoted to the Lord. There's no reason that anyone in this room cannot have a defense or an answer for the hope that is in you. How did Paul engage the culture? He brought them to God. He showed the people that he was accessible. He called them to repentance. They had to make a decision based on what Christ had done for them. 
You can do that. I can. We should do that. Notice what Paul didn't do. Paul didn't point out all their sins. Paul didn't rail on the culture about how messed up they are. He didn't start a blog. He didn't send tweets out there. He didn't start a new club, the, the countercultural whatever club that we're going to have all these. Th- he didn't do any of that. He didn't compromise his message based on the culture. He didn't even tell him, you've got to go out and smash all these idols. No. He saw the people, he met the people where they were at, and then he called them to truth. He spoke God's truth into their lives. This is what we need to do when we engage people. We bring them and present them God. And we present them Christ and Him crucified. This is what we need to teach our children. It's okay to be different. You're called to be different. Be consistent. Be ready for an answer when your friends ask you why you don't participate in that thing on Sundays, why you can't go to this thing, or why you can't watch that movie because it's full of nothing but nonsense and whatever. Have an answer. This is what God has changed me. And then I think we should just remember the response that Paul got. This is Paul, the greatest missionary that ever lived, who preached a great sermon. And people mocked him. People scoffed at him. Got ran out of the cities before. He intrigued some people. Probably answered some questions. And and some believed. That should be comforting to us. Our job isn't to convert the world. You know what Paul did after he gave his defense? He left. He went to Corinth. Why didn't he stay in Athens? There was still more work to do. Well, number one, he had new believers there. Now they're called to reach their culture. But number two, he understood his job wasn't to convert everybody. His job was to proclaim the message of the gospel. We, too, are responsible in the same way. We're not responsible to convert the world but we are responsible to bring the message of the gospel, the truth about who God is, that he is accessible to everyone, and that we have to make a decision because Christ died for them. But I would submit to you, we ought to do it Paul's way. Let's ask questions of the people around us. Let's take notice of the things they enjoy. Let's actually care about the people around us. We don't need to berate the culture, to tear people down, to judge them about all the wrong things they've done. We need them to show them Jesus. God will work that stuff. We trust God for that. We need to be consistent. And the last thing I'll say here is some of you can count on one hand the amount of people that have actually asked you about the hope that is within you. And you're like, so what am I supposed to do? People aren't asking me like they asked Paul. Am I supposed to go in the marketplace and start preaching? Well, no, I don't, I don't think you need to do that. Good luck if you do. I would tell you, I think you need to force the conversation. 
And I don't think that means standing in the marketplace yelling at people in the corner. And I don't even think that means going knocking on the doors and asking people if they know if they die today, they will go to heaven. You can do that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when I say force the conversation, I want you to force the conversation because you're doing these things, because you're being different and you're being consistent. So force the conversation by actually caring about people. And that starts with praying. I can imagine Paul as he's walking around the city and he's seeing all these idols that he starts to pray. His spirit is moved within him and I think he's praying. I think he's praying for these people and how lost they are. You know somebody that you can pray for? I've got neighbors on either side of me. I ought to be praying for them. They're lost. I ought to be praying for them. You know what I also should be praying for? I should be praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Paul didn't sign up on a list to go preach at the Areopagus. But I believe he was asking God for a ways and avenues into the culture. And he was asked. Pray for opportunities. You have not because you ask not. It's a bold thing to pray for. But maybe you haven't been asked because you haven't even started with caring for people or praying for conversations to be had. And then here's a better way to force a conversation after you've prayed. How about you love people? How about you go find somebody you can serve that may not know Jesus? How about you just go out and make a difference with a smile on your face and a joy in your heart so that people can see that you are different and that it matters on the inside. That people can see that your worship is consistent. That the Jesus that you know has actually transformed you other than the hour that you have sat here in church this morning. Love people. Paul loved people. I believe Paul served people. And this is something that everyone in the room can do. You are able to love and you are able to serve. If you're looking for opportunities, come to the food pantry the next two weeks. Guess what? They're not all Christians who show up. You've got a chance just to help serve our people. They need some help. And maybe make some connections with people that are walking in our doors. There's a hundred opportunities around here to serve. But maybe you just need to have a conversation. Have your neighbor over for dinner. Bring dinner to your neighbor. Love well. Serve well. When we do this, when we do this well, we are building bridges into a culture that desperately needs to be transformed by the Gospel. So I'll leave you again with two questions to think about this week. What do I worship? And don't just say, I worship God. Think about it. Consider your time. Consider your bank account. What do you worship? Consider where you take your kids. What do you worship? And then, does my life point to Christ? And here's the solution to both of these questions. Worship Christ. If we will worship Christ, the second question takes care of itself because we become what we worship. And so the more we worship Christ, the more it can't help but overflow into people. And they will see it. Commit to worshiping the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you heard that before? And when you do that, people, can't, people won't be able to see anything else other than something is different about those people that go to Chapel of the Lake. It's Jesus.
Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you that you are not a God made with hands. I thank you that you don't expect us to live up to some unattainable standard because we know we can't. Lord, I also pray for us. It's easy to look around at a culture and point fingers and talk about how wrong they are and how messed up they are and how much the culture needs to change and how easy it is to forget about what a mess we are. So before we look and point fingers, I pray that You would help us consider our own hearts and lives. That You would help us worship You in spirit and in truth. That You would so transform our lives that it would be evident to everyone around that we worship a God who is all-powerful, who has saved us from the mess that we were. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.